Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. So here we are at the end of our little mini power episodes that we've been putting out over Christmas and New Year. These, the intention of these power episodes was to go back through the archives of the three years, now 100 episodes of Inside Influence and pull out the team's favorite guests, the team's favorite conversations, and then distill those conversations into the most powerful 15 minutes, the most powerful idea, tool or strategy from that conversation that we believe is going to be important for 2021 and beyond. So today... For our final one, we bring you someone who I have admired for years as a master of his craft. Today's conversation is with Cody Keenan. Cody Keenan is a professional speechwriter who, as director of speechwriting for President Obama, has written or edited more than 2,000 speeches for his boss, including the historical March 2015 speech when Obama spoke in Selma, Alabama, marking 50 years since Bloody Sunday. More recently, he also worked on Obama's Democratic National Convention speech, which is still being described by many people and many members of the media as historically unprecedented. Now, you will probably, if you're a regular listener to the podcast, you will remember this one as not being that long ago. I think we released it probably a couple of months ago, the original full-form version But it was such a powerful episode. It was such an incredible conversation that we had to bring it back for our little mini series over Christmas. Why did I love this so much? Oh my goodness, this was my pick. Why did I love this so much? I loved it because it is rare that you get to meet a master at the very top of his craft and you get to listen in real time as to how he structures his thoughts, how he structures his words, how he crafts ideas, narratives, stories that go on to set the tone for conversations at a global level at some of the most important topics of our time. What you're going to hear now is you're going to hear Cody jumping straight into how you find your voice as a leader. And believe me, in 2021, we are going to need more leaders who have found and have started to use and own their voices. In this section of the conversation, he covers the mechanics of a great speech. There is a structure to compelling communication. There is a structure to compelling presentations. Now the structure and the rest is, I won't say easy, but the rest is easier when you get that structure right, including how to open with impact. Also, the tools, the tools to working out what you want to say in those moments when it really counts, in those moments where people are going to be listening very carefully to your every word. I was on a high after this conversation for literally days. And as I've said before, if 2021 is the year that you have made an intention, made a decision to raise your level of impact and authority as a communicator, then believe me. This episode is for you. So no more from me. Next week or two weeks from now, I'm not quite sure, we'll be heading right back into normal programming. But in the meantime, I leave you in the incredibly safe and masterful hands of Cody Keenan. 
It's going to be different for everybody. Um, the first thing I'd say is if, if you need speech writing help, I've got a bunch of great students looking for jobs. Um, but if you're, <laughs> if you're going to do it yourself, um, you know, I spend some real time alone. And it sounds a little cheesy, but spend some time alone kind of writing out, you know, who are you? What makes you tick? What do you care about? You know, what's your story? Um, and be honest about it and be honest with yourself. I mean, this, this might sound kind of a little cringy self-helpy, um, but I think it's important, you know, you should know, and it's true if you have a speechwriter too, but understand what makes you tick, what matters to you. And, you know, then if you're, if you're building up towards, if you have something to say, figure out, you know, who your audience is going to be and what you actually want them to know, you know, not just that. It's not what you think somebody wants to hear. I mean, that's when you usually see a speech that falls flat. But but what makes you interesting? What makes you have something unique to say? And and that brings me to you know one of the other cardinal rules of of speech writing and speech giving is you should only give a speech that only you can give. You know, if there are when when political speeches fall flat, it's a speech that anybody else could deliver. But why is it? Why why are you telling us something? Why should we listen to you? What makes what makes this unique and tailored to you? And that could be working in your biography, your values, or what you're working on. Um, but whatever your whatever speech you're delivering, nobody else should be able to give that speech. I'm so glad you mentioned that. I I read I think it was a quote from you recently, um, having written the Democratic National Convention speech for for President Obama. And you said you always start by sitting down with him and talking about firstly what's the story we want to tell. And why is he the only person that can tell it? And I just think that that's such a beautiful frame. Why are, the only, why are you the only person who can tell this story? Talk to me about how you approach that particular speech, because obviously that was pretty unprecedented. Yeah, I mean, I, obviously I, I meant it because, you know, if he and, I, he and I are still starting with that conversation after I've been with him now for 13 years and everyone in the world knows who he is, but we still start out by saying, What's the thing that only I can say here? I should also issue the disclaimer first that he has always been our chief speechwriter. Uh, I, I think anybody who's followed, you know, him or Pete Souza, his photographer on social media, has seen, um, you know, his edits on the page, and and sometimes he'll pull out the legal pad and write it himself. I mean, he's he is a writer. He always has been. I think he's always resented having speechwriters, even today. Um, and he never misses an opportunity to remind me that he wrote the 2004 speech himself. All that said, you do develop a good rapport and trust over the years. And and so, you know, our process for this one was different, obviously, because of COVID. Um, I haven't seen him in six months, which is, you know, by far the longest. I haven't seen him since the first campaign. And, you know, we'll talk on the phone or, or do it over email. But uh, I think we got on the phone maybe about a week before the speech and started talking it through. And our process is different, sure, but obviously the convention was too. Um, and I was, I didn't have anything to do with convention beyond his speech, but I was pretty nervous, uh, about, you know, if the, if the party would be able to pull off a convention like this. And I was stunned, uh, at the job they did. I thought it was tremendous, but you know, you're, you're thinking as a speechwriter, you're thinking through the mechanics of the speech, right? And you know, one of the first things you think about is the audience. Well, there's not going to be one, not live anyway. Um, it turned out there were 40 million people at home watching it either on television or streaming platforms, but there's no one in front of them. So the first thing you do is dispense with applause lines and uh, jokes. 
you know, typically at a, at a political convention, you're going to be throwing out all sorts of red meat to the crowd. Um, but there isn't one, you know, so no one's going to cheer. No one's going to laugh if they do it at home. Nobody can hear it. So get rid of all that. I, I did. There were a couple speeches I noticed last week where, you know, uh, speech, speech writers tried too hard to keep some jokes and applause lines in there and they just kind of fell flat. And I, I found myself cringing on the couch. We said, you know, this is just going to be obviously conversational, but let's make it a little intimate. I mean, how often do I get to speak to somebody one on one in their living room like this? Um, and the subject matter is obviously very urgent. So let's give it a little bit of urgency, too. So we wrote the speech. And, and when I say we, I mean, we uh, we wrote the speech with that in mind. And I, you know, I, I did see in some of the reviews afterwards, people a lot of people were stunned and use that word stunned by um, you know, they use a variety of words, the intensity, the urgency, despair. Um, people use the word unsettled by the speech. And if, if people were unsettled by it, good. That was the point. You know, it's, people should be inspired to get up and go figure out what they can do to um, help Democrats win this election because democracy itself is at stake. And that's really what we wanted to come through in the speech. Is there the, the questions that's kind of coming up for me right now is, is there a line there? You know, I think for a lot of people, you go into those words like unsettling, stunned. You have to bring a lot of yourself to a speech in order to get that kind of a response. Is there a line there that you walk with President Obama where you think, no, that's just that's a little bit too much. You know, I think that that's gone past the realms of, of appropriate and into, you know, almost too emotive. Is there a line that you walk? No, that's a really good question. I, I think there's no such thing as too emotive. Um, and that's, you know, kind of if there is a, a hallmark of my speech writing, that's what I go for is trying to make people feel something. You know, you can you can bludgeon an audience over the head with facts and figures and the ins and outs of policy. And, you know, President Obama likes to do that when we're delivering a big policy speech. Um, I prefer to go right at somebody's gut because I, I, I find that to be a way that a speech is more memorable. You know, nobody's going to remember a whole bunch of numbers, facts and figures. If you can shock them with one, sure. But they're going to remember how it made them feel and if it translates into their own life. So I'm all for emotion. Um, it's pretty rare he's asked me to walk anything back. You know, the first example that that comes to mind is um, – it was back in 20, December 2012, the day that uh, there was a mass shooting in Newtown, Connecticut, uh, and uh, 26 year old children were murdered in their classroom. And um, in the first statement he had to give on it to the press that day, you know, I'd added in a paragraph about, you know, as, as a parent, the first thing he thought of was his own girls and, um, and continued on from there. And he just he cut that paragraph out and said, that's too raw. I'm not going to be able to get through that without crying. And then he ended up crying anyway, um, and had to pause for a while. And, you know, that really, that ends up driving home a point too. I mean, people like seeing emotion, but you can, you can also do too much of it. I mean, the fact that president Obama doesn't show emotion very often, um, means that the times when he does carry an even tougher punch. And, you know, I was watching the speech at home last week, like everybody else. And his delivery was, was extraordinary. The fact that he rose to a moment like that, uh, and actually choked up towards the end, um, made it much, much more powerful. And that's, you know, people will ask, do you, do you give him stage directions to do that? Like, do you write 
sing here, pause here, cry here. No, you can't manufacture stuff like that. You know, you're either feeling it or you're not. Uh, so I, I think it gave the speech a much more powerful impact. You know, it's really interesting that you say that one of the things, um, you know, I don't teach speech, write, speech writing, but I'm often called upon to, to teach presentation skills for different corporations and, and also students. And one of the things that I talk about is your power is in the contrast. You know, if you are normally stoic and, you know, and not very emotive with your voice, then the moment of impact is when you shift up a gear. If you're normally really high energy, then your moment of impact is when you slow down and bring some gravity into your voice. Like it doesn't, there isn't one formula for impact, but it's usually when you shift out of your usual gear into something else that it breaks the state. So, you know, the fact that he is normally quite serious and has such gravitas about him when he does go into his emotions on something, that is a really powerful moment. Absolutely. In a lot of ways, you're conducting your audience, too, as a public speaker. You know, your body language, your tone, the volume of your voice, all of these things are telling them when to listen, when to applaud, when to laugh. Um, you're signaling where you are in the speech. You know, it's all these different cues that your audience picks up on. And you're exactly right. Changing them up has a big impact. Let's dive into the mechanics the mechanics of a compelling speech and the elements that need to be there. Talk to me about the, the opening moments. What's your favorite way to open? Or what's your favorite opening you've ever wrote without putting you on the spot? Uh, oh, that is putting me on the spot. It's totally I have, putting you I on have, the spot, have, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I have a couple, actually. Um, you know, again, with the caveat that President Obama works on all his speeches. The... I love just diving in as as a form of grabbing attention. So my two favorites were um, the speech he gave at the 70th anniversary of D-Day in Normandy and the speech he gave in Selma, Alabama on the 50th anniversary of the march, uh, uh, the march from Selma to Montgomery. And um, both of those, the subject matter and the place, you know, kind of write the speech themselves. You can't, it's hard to screw up a speech about D-Day when you're standing, you know, a couple hundred yards from the cliffs at Normandy. Uh, it's hard to screw up a speech about, you know, Selma, where a bunch of black Americans were brutally beaten for just marching for the right to vote. So I thought it would be cool, rather than just to retell the story, and certainly not to start out with acknowledgments, by just diving right in um, and telling the story of the hours before the event that we all know. So for, I don't have it right in front of me, but for, you know, D-Day, I actually started the speech the day before. Um, and the opening line of the speech, well, you know, I, I thought about, I did a lot of reading for both these speeches too, which if you have the luxury of time, reading, reading up and doing a bunch of research makes any speech better. But, I, you know, I read a lot about the day before D-Day and all the planning that went into it. And, you know, what it was like the day before for, you know, generals who were, terrified it might not work and for soldiers who thought you know this might be it um and started the speech with you know if prayer were made of sound the skies over england that night would have deafened the world and went into the planning and the preparation and captains pacing decks and uh young soldiers you know kissing a picture of their wife and tucking it in their shirt and and then kind of in the third paragraph just ending that section with uh the armada kind of setting off across the channel 
And then I allowed for some acknowledgments because I knew, you know, he'd want to acknowledge President Sarkozy and, and veterans there and whatnot. But that's a powerful way to do it, too. You know, just starting out with the story behind the story uh, before you get to any acknowledgments or the purpose of the speech. I did the same thing with Selma. And, and rather than just begin with um, the confrontation on the bridge between the marchers and the police, I started with what it was like in the church basement a couple hours before where, you know, people knew what they were getting into. They knew there was a chance um, that this would end violently. What do they do to prepare? Well, it turns out, you know, there was a priest in there praying with people and there were people who taught the tactics of nonviolence who were literally teaching people what to do if you get hit with tear gas. Um, just kind of this nervous energy in the air, you know, people pacing around and, and preparing themselves for what lay ahead that, you know, if there's anything in common between those two speeches, that was it. Uh, and again, I tried to do three or four paragraphs worth before getting to the acknowledgments. And um, I've always thought it's cool to tell the story about what happened before the story we all know. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch, or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website, juliemasters.com. Pop in your email address. It is free. We will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas tools and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work. It's called the Influencer Code. It's not long, but it is full of value. So download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business. Thank you always to our producer, co-founder and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.